Welcome to Sea of Fire Ministries with James Myers. In this series, we are studying the book of Acts. Today we discuss Paul's answer to the Jewish council, his help from the Roman commander, and his safe passage to Felix in Caesarea. We hope this message serves to strengthen and build up the church. Okay, so we're going to start at Acts chapter 22, verse 30, and then we'll continue to uh, finish all of chapter 23. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that one one part were Sadducees and the other uh, Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not, not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them, and bring them into the barracks. But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Now there were more than forty who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when Paul's sister's son heard, heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than forty of them will lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat They will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart, and commanded him, Tell tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare two hundred soldiers, seventy horsemen, and two hundred spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night, and provide mounts to set Paul on, and bring him safely to Felix the governor. He wrote a letter in the following manner, Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. 
And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I, I brought him before their counsel. I found out that he was accused concerning uh, questions of their law, but had nothing, uh, had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. I'm sorry. The, the next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. He who has ears to hear the word of God. Let him hear it. Our Father and our God, we praise you without end. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithful testimony and your faithfulness in the lives of your people. As we consider this account of your servant Paul, your bondservant Paul, your apostle to the Gentiles, I ask that you give us wisdom, you, you give us your insight, you give us your understanding we might know the truth, the whole truth, and praise you for your truth. For you are God, and there is no other. We thank you. We ask for your providence and your presence now and forever. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Okay, so verse 30 of uh, chapter 22 is merely to set up this council again this is the commander um this is the commander um that that this is referring to so he wanted to know for certain what he why he was accused by the jews so the commander wanted to know why uh, paul was accused by the jews so he released him and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear to brought paul down and set him before them so now going into chapter 23 then paul looking earnestly at the council said men and brethren i have lived in all good conscience before god until this day now that's that's a pretty that seems like a bombastic expression. I've I've lived uh, totally conscience free, basically good conscience before God until this day. Now, how do we reconcile that with this same man referring to himself as the chief of sinners, right? So, but he's not saying, look, I have been a perfect man my whole life. What he's saying is, as it relates to this trial, as it relates to you, counsel, as it relates to what I'm being accused of. As far as, you know, doing what and preaching uh, Jews to Jews to go against the customs of Moses. According to that, I have lived in a completely good conscience until this day. I was raised in the strictest part of the Pharisees sect. You know, I was raised under the, you know, at the feet of Gamaliel, or I, I, I was taught under, at the feet of Gamaliel and all the rest. And so everything I've done is I've done in a good conscience. I was there when Stephen was killed and... You know, obviously, I've repented of that now, but then, you know, at that point, it was still of a good conscience because I thought I was serving God. So, he says, I've lived uh, with a good conscience before God until this day. So, the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So, this was completely unlawful, which we'll see Paul actually makes a point of. But, so, what this, what this high priest basically hears is, you've, 
you're saying you've lived in a good conscience. We know what you're doing. We know what this whole thing and what you're preaching. And so how dare you come into this council and proclaim that you've lived a good conscience as though you're kind of castigating us, basically. You know, this is kind of an offense. You know you shouldn't have, basically. If your conscience has not been seared, you deserve to get punched, to get struck. It doesn't say whether or not he was struck, but I'm sure he was. I'm sure at the command, it was immediately the command. Now, we don't know if Ananias is just is actually doing this because he thinks he deserves to be struck or if he's just trying to appease the council. Everyone in this council at this point wants the blood of Paul. And the commander is basically setting this whole thing up so he can know what he's even being accused of. And still, the commander won't find out. We'll see that. <laughs> but the commander ultimately won't find out. So, uh, then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now, this doesn't sound very Christian. We've seen, we've seen Paul, though, respond to that sorcerer, you know, when he was in front of the, the proconsul, and he, he, he cursed him. Now, what he's saying, and we'll see that he didn't know, and we'll talk about why possibly he didn't know that Ananias was a high priest at that time. But, so he's, he's telling him, God, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. This refers to the tombs at that time would be washed on the outside so that they would appear more beautiful. It would, it would make it look newer kind of a thing. And Christ would call the Pharisees, they were like whitewashed tombs. But inside, they're just full of men's dead bones. So this is basically what Paul is saying. You whitewashed wall. There's also another illusion in Ezekiel where it's kind of the same thing. You, you, you beautify your walls by whitewashing them, but they're absolutely powerless. They are, they are not the strength that you make them out to be by just making them pretty and washing them. They're, they're not sure. They're not solid. So he is saying, you whitewashed tomb. You hypocrite. You hypocrite. You, you make yourself look, out, look good on the outside, but inside, inside, you're full of men's dead bones. And he continues, uh, For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? What a, hypo a hypocritical thing. You know, you're here, you're sitting here, supposedly here to judge me according to the law. You're saying I'm going against the law. And here, right at the outset, you command contrary to the law. So he's saying, you know, you whitewashed wall. You know, you judge me according to the law while you act contrary to the law. And so the people say, and those stood by, who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? This would be unlawful in a bunch of different areas. Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of your of, uh, ruler of your people. Let's spend a little bit of time here, just very brief. Because there are many different speculations that throughout church history have tried to reconcile, uh, first of all, Paul insulting the high priest like this and speaking to the high priest like this, and why or whether or not he actually didn't know whether this uh, was the high priest. There are people who have actually come to the conclusion that Paul did know and he just kind of deceived to make it seem like, to make it okay for him to insult him kind of a thing. I, I refuse that. In Josephus, uh, he, he talks about a history where uh, Jonathan, the high priest, was killed actually by Felix, who we'll, we'll see. He's, Paul is sent to Felix. Felix was a cruel ruler at that time, but we'll get to him in a minute. God will. However, so, um, so Jonathan was killed in the year 58, and there was a period of time where there was kind of no high priest 
technically. So Ananias was most likely the acting high priest. Who knows if he had the garbs on? Also, Paul hadn't been in Jerusalem for 20 years. People say that that's probably why he didn't know the high priest. But, I, I mean, I have to imagine he would have noticed by the garments and all the rest. I mean, again, he grew, he was raised in Ju the Jewish law. I mean, it wouldn't be lost on him. But he, he probably just, you know, he probably... The, 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 the term, actually, for high priest can also mean chief priest. So he could just be a great chief priest who is acting as the high priest, so he still has his chief priest garb on. So Paul just doesn't know, okay? Because it is completely unlawful to, to speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Now, in, in, throughout the Bible, even James says, don't, don't, you know, revolt against, you know, don't speak evil of, of, the, of the kings and stuff because they don't bear the sword for no reason, basically. So we are called, like I said, to respect, honor our leaders, okay? Like their office, right? Now, we are not called to respect what they do when they go, when they act apart from God, okay? We are not called to follow that. Again, we do not obey if they command us to do that which God forbids or forbids us to do that which God commands, However, the point is, we are not to slander. We are not to, we are not to degrade our rulers so much to people that they lose faith. Again, they, they ought to notice by their own you know, experiences and their own knowledge and their own consideration of these, these things. And that's, that's basically the point. I mean, there's, there's more to it than that. But again, that we, are, we are called to respect and, and honor the offices of our authorities. Again, throughout the Bible, it says that God sets these authorities up. That also includes Pharaoh. Okay? So let's remember that. And so let's look at how Moses was with Pharaoh. He was able to get angry, but he never really spoke evil to him or even about him. Very important. Very important. Okay. But when Paul perceived, this is interesting, but when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. We've talked about, and Luke even mentions it again, that the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection or spirits or angels. Basically, there were, there were four main sects of Judaism. We've talked about this. Pharisee, Pharisees, everybody knows. Sadducees, which basically means they think that everything, they do believe in um, um, a period of, of, of death. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, but, um, but they believed basically everything, ha everything happens and God ordains everything just in the here and now, in this life. He either punishes you or rewards you in this life based on your obedience to the law. But everything is only for this life. The Essenes would be kind of like that, but they would have a period of death in the afterlife. And there was a hell, shale, I'm sorry, that's what it was that the, the uh, Sadducees believed because the Bible talks about this period where you're buried in shale. You, you descend into shale or Hades. It's another translation of it. So, so the, the, and then the other one were, were the zealots and we've talked about them. Those were kind of the, the t terrorists of the time because those are the, we'll get to them, we'll get back to them too. But the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the angel or, and they didn't believe in the spirit. And now Paul is saying, now Paul sees 
Some are Sadducees, some are Pharisees. And he knows he is not going to get a fair trial. Right? Now we also see, or we also remember, that he was willing, he was glad to not only be bound, but to die for the name of Jesus in Jerusalem. Remember? Remember? Now, uh, he, he had uh, been told, well, he's told here, uh, be of good cheer because I'm sending you to Jerusalem. So, he, I mean, to, to Rome. So now he knows he's not going to get a fair trial. So he is going to put out there really what he is, part of what he is on trial for is preaching the resurrection of the dead, really through Christ. Uh, but so he's using this, though, kind of a, as a tactical means because the Sadducees and the Pharisees were always at odds together. And, and we've seen enemies over and over again come together, unite against the church. And that's what's happening here. And yet, Paul is able to point out their disunion, to bring out, I'm being judged for this, and y'all still are not united about this either. So, he's saying, I, and he also says he's a, his father was a Pharisee. So, we get a glimpse a little bit into his background. Remember, his father or grandfather was likely very prominent because they became Roman citizens. And we talked about the high privilege with that and, and what that entailed and what required for that to happen and everything. We'll also look at that with Felix. However, so he, we, we talked about his father a little bit, but we also see that he was a high priest as well. I'm seeing, sorry, a Pharisee as well. So, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I'm being, I'm being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. So, they are trying to divide the church, and so Paul is dividing their little assembly full of hypocrites and, and united against this evil cause. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Now, Luke... Luke does something interesting here. He's already mentioned that the Sadducees don't say that there are no, there is no uh, resurrection because he basically points out three things here. They say they say that there uh, there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. He's actually talking about specifically angels or spirits because that's what they're going to kind of talk talk about here in a second as well. Um, then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose in protest, saying, "We find no evil in this man." But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So the Pharisees <laughs> go completely to the opposite side now. Now they're like, okay, this guy is, there's something here. And it, because they, they are more determined to the actual cause of an actual resurrection that is taught throughout scripture, the actual you know, existence of angels and spirits that is spoken of throughout scripture. And so they're, saying, they're basically saying, you know what, I, I can't side with you with this anymore, Sadducees. This, this is not an area where we can compromise on. And so we find nothing wrong with this man anymore. Now, we have to see that these are still fallen men. And their prejudices is, what, is what's kind of leading into this. But it's ultimately God's faithfulness and God's leading the heart. Remember, he hardened Pharaoh's heart, which let me briefly also say, because we talked about how that looks, but let us also not minimize God's sovereignty and absolute authority over all of creation, including the hearts of men and women. Okay, And that's what he does. That's what he, he's doing here. He, he causes this whole thing, too, because he's faithful to 
his servants. He's faithful to his people. And right now he's being faithful to Paul uh, with this whole encounter. So, find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Remember, Gamaliel had kind of said the same thing when he was kind of protesting for this, for at least not killing the apostles at that time. You know, basically, if, if this is not of God, then it's going to fail. And we don't have anything to worry about. But it is of, if it is of God, we're going to fight ourselves fighting against him. So let's just let him go. And then they beat them first, but then they let him go. So it's the same, same argument. Now, when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them. So set up the scene here. I mean, this fury, this, this, this chaos, this, this, this dissension, this great dissension, this huge uproar, they're basically pulling Paul. You know, they're kind of fighting over him. Like, no, he's not guilty. Yes, he is guilty. No, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's with us. No, he's with us. So they're, they're like rending him to pieces. So the commander, again, has to save him. Really, the only thing he's heard now is Paul saying, because I believe in the, because I profess in the resurrection of the dead, this is why I'm being judged. And so to this commander, he's like, oh, that's, this is ridiculous. You know, this isn't deserving of death. I don't know what this is about. Anyway, so this is, that's what the commander hears. He goes in, saves him again, okay, saves him again, and takes him back into the barracks. But the following night, the Lord stood by him. This is a terrible translation. The, this is truly Jesus standing above him, like over him. He's, he's not just right by him, like just chilling. He's over him. He's surrounding him, basically. And said, be of good cheer, Paul. Don't be afraid. Fear not. I am with you. Be of good cheer, Paul. I mean, what a comforting word, but totally contrary to everything that's happening to Paul. But let's continue. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. All of Acts, specifically starting at chapter 9, has dealt with Paul's ministry. Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, going out to the Gentiles. And now he's arrested, he's bound, but his ministry does not end. In fact, his missionary journeys, we saw all those maps, you know, with him going all, all to these places. Well, now he's going to go from Jerusalem down to Caesarea for a time and then over to Rome. So we still will have a map. He'll be in chains. And he's not going willingly. I mean, he wanted to go to Rome, but he's not going willingly. But God is saying, be of good cheer. I know this is a terrible circumstance, but I've been telling you this, this is happening. But this is the purpose. This is the purpose, Paul. Just as you've testified to me in Jerusalem, so you will testify to me in Rome. This is the purpose. Be of good cheer. I am with you. I will never forsake you. This is a comforting word coming to the Apostle Paul. And it was, when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. So these are the zealots. These are the, the, the sect of the, ze, the zealots, which the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes hated. They despised the zealots because they always caused trouble with the Romans, you know, <laughs> you know because they were always killing Romans and, and all the rest. And so they were always causing troubles and, 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 and you know... Uh, factions between Rome and the Jews. And so they're always kind of a political problem. But again, now, here they find these evil men who are 
determined to do this evil cause. So now they have, again, what was an enemy, an ally in this evil cause. But these people make an oath, and they bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Much to the chagrin of these men, apparently this is how they're going to die. They don't end up killing Paul, because God is amazingly faithful. They come... This means they actually had no legal reason to have Paul executed. Otherwise, they would wait until the council reconvenes, waiting for the trial and actually make the case, which they should have done just a minute ago in front of the commander. They did not. They don't have a case. They don't have a reason to kill Paul other than their hatred. That's the point. They will, they're fine with this because they're like, yeah, we, we can't really actually have a trial because we'll lose. You know, and so, yes, we're going to team up with these zealots, with these terrorists, as God's people, we are, you know, as God's religious leaders, as leaders over Israel, we are going to team up with these terrorists, with these murderers, and, and so that they can kill Paul. This, this evil, terrible person going out preaching Jesus. So, now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. So, more than 40 put themselves under this vow. More than 40 men. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under, the, un, under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Under a great oath. Look at them. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but, you were, but we were ready to kill him before he comes near. So, here's the conspiracy. Here's what we're going to do, okay? You, you send, send, out for, and tell the, send out for Paul and tell the commander, you know, we'd like to reconvene. You know, if you wouldn't, if, if you're cool with it, I know that went that went south in a hurry. But if you could give us a second chance, we'll make this we'll make this trial a little bit better, and you can kind of understand more. So go ahead and bring Paul back. And as they bring him back, forty men are going to be waiting to kill him. They are devoted for this cause. They're risking their life for this. They would be killed for this. They're risking their life to go against the soldiers because the soldiers are going to escort him out there, right? And so they're already going to be fighting against the soldiers. But it's almost—I mean—it's almost inevitable that every one of them would be killed, and they're fine with that. They're putting themselves under this oath because they think they're serving God with this, and ultimately, this is their demise. They put themselves under this evil oath, so an oath that's supposed to be devoted to God. Something that is completely against God. That's completely illegal. And if any of these were even close to faithful Jews, they would have known. And so this leads to their own demise. A very slow and terrible demise. I mean, you got to imagine some of them, you know, would just forget about the oath. And be like, okay, well, God forgive me. And just move on. But these are zealots. Again, you've got to think about the terrorists of our own time. Committed so much, committed to killing, they kill themselves. They strapped on bombs to themselves. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. They're more than happy to die for this spurious cause. Verse 16. However, so when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And we don't know, how, so obviously this is Paul's nephew. We don't know if they became Christians or if they continued professing to be Jews and had like this, because what would happen is if you, you know, 
go outside of Judaism when you were a Jew, the family would actually have a funeral for you. They'd have this funeral procession. So we don't know if that was the case. Because, but we, also, we do see that at least his sister, at least his nephew, was still faithful to Paul. We don't know how he heard this. We also can't, we don't know, basically this word this, uh, for this young man means anybody under the age of 40. So we have no idea how old he is. Paul's probably fairly up there, so his sister's probably up there. So I would guess he's probably right around his 20s. You know, uh, We don't know if he overheard. I doubt it. I think somebody else might have told him. Uh, I think word kind of got back to him. So we just don't know. Um, so when he heard of their ambush, though, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul again for his, for his, for his uh, safety. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander for he has something to tell him. He didn't say, okay, tell the centurion. Paul knows he has to be very careful. He has to be very careful. He doesn't know how much he can trust this commander, but that's all he's left with. That's all he's left with. With this, with this conspiracy, that is all that he can do. That is his only possible avenue to get out of this. But he knows that if he tells the centurion, and all sorts of other people are going to find out, and this whole thing is going to come to an even worse end. So he, he tells him to take him straight to the commander. Um, so he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to, to him and asked me to bring the, this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside, and asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? See, this, this is what I was saying. The commander, this might, again, because God controls the heart, remember, this, this, this commander is in fear, in great fear now, because he had bound a Roman, and he was about to flog a Roman, remember? And so he might be doing this just to appease Paul so he doesn't tell anybody about that, you know, so he doesn't, you know, tattletale on him. So he might just be trying to, you know, uh, engender uh, favor from Paul. So he, he brings him aside, though, and, and asks him privately, what do you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do, so now the commander is hearing this, they have a conspiracy. And now this commander basically knows they really have no reason to kill him, and which we'll see in his letter. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him. Men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander knows that they're going to be calling him soon. Tomorrow. Well, it's going to be happening tomorrow. And so he's got to do something about it now. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, Tell no one that you, that you have revealed these things to me. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell a soul. Okay. Verse 23, and he called for two centurions. Again, these are, these are leaders over 100 other soldiers, saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. So this, this commander, at great expense and at great possible peril, he's sending all these, I mean, they have a bunch still, you know, so they'll, they'll, be, they'll be fine in Jerusalem, but he's sending all these men out and paying the expenses for this. So let's, let's recognize and appreciate what God is doing through this man. He's sending all sorts of protection with him just in case this conspiracy is found out. We will have more, more than enough protection. You know, we're talking about 40 people under this, 
Silly conspiracy. Okay, well, you'll have 200 soldiers, you'll have 70 horsemen, uh, and, and uh, 200 spearmen. The 70 horsemen continue. Anyway, we'll get to that. So, to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. This is Caesarea Maritima, the one that's on the coast. Remember, and that, that, was, that was basically the province of the... Of the it was over, it basically was the capital of the Judean province. So the governor would be there. That's why he's sending the Felix. Felix is uh, uh, in uh, Caesarea. Okay. Uh, third hour of the night. That's 9 o'clock p.m. And provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. He wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias, that's the name of the commander. To the most excellent governor, Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. True. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Not true. He did not come in and rescue him because he had found out he was a Roman. He didn't find that out until he was about to scourge him. Remember? So, he's saving himself here. This is, this is selfishly motivated. But again, now he's doing Paul a favor, so he's hoping... You know, Paul won't mention anything about the whole bounding, and I was about to flog him and everything. You know, so he's just saying, after having learned that he was a Roman, I went and rescued him. Okay, let me say a word or two about this Felix as, very, as briefly as I could. His name was Antonius uh, um, Felix. His brother was, his name was Pallas, Antonius Pallas, who was a slave for a while under um, Antonia Minor, who was the daughter of Mark Antony, okay? Now, eventually, she freed him. Now, when you were freed, when you were a freed man, once your former master died, you would typically take on their name, which probably, remember when, uh, when uh, the commander had said he had, he had paid a great sum for his citizenship, and then his name is Claudius Lysias, so that means he pr it probably happened under the reign of Emperor uh, Claudius, Caesar, okay? So, the, 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 when, when Paulus and Felix were uh, freed and then Antonia died, they took on her name. That's why they're Antonius uh, Felix and Antonia uh, Pallas. Tacitus, the Roman historian, talks about Felix. He became, so uh, Paulus became very great. He was, he was, a, he was an advisor to uh, Claudius Caesar and then to Nero as well, a terrible, wicked Nero. However, he was, he was uh, an advisor to them, very, very prominent. He became very prominent. And it was really by his recommendation, for, by his commendation, to set up Felix as the governor. Basically, that's how he got the job. Okay, So these two slaves end up in high class. They are, they're, you go from a slave into the royal courts, basically. And Tac uh, Tacitus talks about how uh, Felix ruled, you know, it looked like a king, but his mind was still that of a slave. He was ruthless. He was ruthless, especially to the Jews. Uh, whenever there was an uprising, you know, an uprising, even if the Jews had an actual, true complaint against the Romans, a just one, he would slaughter them. He would slaughter the Jews. A bunch of different terrible accounts. But he, this is important in this regard because this, this commander knows this. Okay, this commander knows this. And so he's basically saying, you know, when I found out he was a Roman, these Jews were about to kill him. So I saved him. And just so you know, so when these people come, he's already setting it up to basically let Paul go. Okay, I understand. You got to listen to the testimony. Let's continue. 
And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their counsel, which we saw. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. There you go. He's, again, just suggesting, free this man. Free this man. There's nothing here. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I, I, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. So basically, uh, they're going to come as well. They're, they're following, but at a distance. Because, you know, basically, uh, the commander has it where at 9 o'clock in the evening, with all these soldiers, he has Paul kind of sneak out of the city. And then the next day, when the, when the chief priests and all of them come and ask him to bring out Paul, he's like, oh, yeah, that, I, I actually happened to just send him off to Caesarea. Why don't you go ahead and go <laughs> and, and make your case there? So that's, that's kind of how that happened. So, again, so they're going to go and state their charges uh, in front of Felix, which we'll consider next week, God willing. Uh, then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. This would be this was basically kind of in the middle between Jerusalem and Caesarea. It's kind of a little closer to Caesarea. So anyway, the next day they left the horsemen to go on with him. So the soldiers went back. They took they took him this far, and the soldiers came back. Okay, uh, and then the horsemen continued to go on with him and returned to the barracks. Okay. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also pre presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from, which was Cilicia. Remember Tarsus of Cilicia. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have also come. Also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. This is, this is basically Herod's palace. It was a great and grand palace at the time. Well, it was. It was, it was. He had rebuilt the city of Caesarea, and again, that was where the capital was over the province of all Judea. So it was a great palace, and so Paul is kept there until his accusers come. So, and this has lasted until through our time. Actually, the Romans in their in their jurisprudence, in their law, in their legal system, basically, you know, you you can't be secretly accused. You know, the person the accused has a right to, to stand before the, the, his accusers, to know who's accusing you. And that goes into the government of the, the governing of the church too. Whenever anybody has this secret complaint, if, if we ignore anonymous complaints, let me put it that way. We ignore faceless complaints. We don't know the source, then we don't know the validity of the complaint. Let me just put it that way. If you cannot stand to accuse somebody, then don't then your accusation isn't even worth considering. You know, unless you are unless you're willing to accuse the person to their face, say nothing. And since that's the case, we're not going to consider it until you do. And that's that's basically what's happening. Okay, they're going to uh, give him a hearing in the presence of his accusers. What I want to consider today. Again, looking at uh, the life of, uh, of Paul, it's uh, Psalm 35, but only the verses, only verses um, 19 through 29. This psalm is ta it, 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 it's talking about the Lord as the avenger of his people, but there are basically three stanzas. One, verses 1 through 10, verses 11 through 18, and then the final one, which is one we're going to consider, verses 19 through 28. And they all, 
what you have to understand about the Psalms is that they, they, the poetry is, is, is different compared to our poetry. They, they, they write in parallelisms. So if you, if you see that first stanza and you compare it to the second stanza and you compare it to the third, there are many similarities as far as what the content of it is and even the context, but it kind of builds one upon the other. Okay, and, and in each one, it starts off with a complaint, with a legitimate complaint, prayer to God, and a promise to praise Him for His faithfulness. Okay, so let's read um, verses 19 through 28. Let the, and, but we're going to stop with each verse. Let them not rejoice over me who are wrongfully my enemies. So, let them not rejoice over me who are wrongfully my enemies. So again, we've got to see... First, because again, what I want us to consider is this specifically applying to Paul. They are not truly his enemies. Remember, we considered that last week. Even though he is their enemy, he calls them brethren and fathers. They are not his enemy. So let them not rejoice over me who are wrongfully my enemies. Let them gain no victory when there's no war. When there's no battle, they are not my enemies, so let them not rejoice over me, nor let them wink with the eye who, hated me, who hate me without a cause. We can't think about winking in our own contemporary day. This would be like a denigrating winking when, it, when, a, when a victim was suffering kind of a thing, and to, to much of the delight of this person, they would wink at them. It's kind of a deriding thing. It was a, it was a sign of derision. For they do not speak peace. They say that they speak peace. They pretend to speak peace. Jeremiah talks about the false prophets uh, uh, preaching peace, peace, when there is no peace. And that's another thing. But they, they, for they do not speak, but they devise deceitful matters against the quiet ones in the land. So again, they, they do not speak peace, but they devise dece deceitful, lying matters against the peaceful ones in the land. They, they pretend to speak peace, they don't speak peace, but they devise uh, lies against the peaceful ones. And also open their mouth wide against me. Because if they're, when, you, when, the, when the evil man is full of slander and just wants to, and has all this built up, he has to open his mouth wide for all of this slander, for all of these insults. The peaceful man, the man of God, does no such thing. He, he is able to return animosity with peace. Just like Jesus says, to turn the other cheek, that is not a call for pacifism. It's a call to, exchange, to return hatred and, and vitriol with peace. You, res, you respond with peace. Okay. They also opened, okay, and, and said, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. So again, just like these, the, this, this council who thinks that they've seen, that they just know that Paul is going out and preaching to Jews to, to stop following the customs of Moses, they just, they're, they're saying, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it, when they have seen no such thing. They're just convinced of it. It's a lie. And, and David will go on to that. This is obviously a psalm from David. This you have seen, O Lord. You are not unaware of this. You see all. You know all. You know what, what this is. All right? These are deceitful men. I'm not coming to you because I feel like, you know, <laughs> I feel like I might have done something wrong and they're just, you know, making it out to be something worse. No, this, what I've said, you know this is true. Do not keep silence, 
O Lord, do not be far from me. Stir up yourself and awake to my vindication. It's not as if God is asleep. It's as if he needs to rise. But again, what, what, what David is imploring is act now, God. You know, it, it seems like you, you're, you're, you're letting your servant suffer the slander and the arrows of the enemy. I ask that you rise up now and, and for your cause, for my cause, because I am your servant. And so to show your faithfulness. Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Again, vindicate me, O Lord my God, not according to my righteousness. Not because I'm such a faithless ser faithful servant, and I'm just such a wonderful minister, and I'm just such a wonderful Christian, but according to your righteousness. Judge me according to your righteousness. Do to me according to your own righteousness. Vindicate me. Let them not say in their hearts, Ah, so we would have it, like, killing him. Let them not say, we have swallowed him up. Again, this is another reason for the, the opening wide of the mouth, you know, to accuse him with slander, to swallow him up, to consume him. They want to destroy him. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who rejoice at my hurt. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who exalt themselves against me. Again, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Bring them to derision. Bring them to derision and laugh in their derision. Let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause, which we've seen uh, the, the companions of Paul do continually. And let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, who has pleasures in the prosperity of his servant. So again, it doesn't say let David be magnified. It doesn't say let Paul be magnified. It says let the Lord be magnified, who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. And my tongue shall speak of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. This is the heart of the servant of God. This is the heart of a servant of God. Throughout trial, throughout slander, throughout being accused of things you have not done. And, and to be even be threatened with death because of something you have not done. Yet, my tongue shall speak of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. I know you are God. And I know maybe it seems to me that you're sleeping. Maybe it seems to me that you are just letting this happen much to my punishment, much to my harm. And you just seemingly are indifferent. I know that's not true, God. I know that's not true. Rise up. Awake. You vindicate your servant according to your righteousness, for you're the faithful one. I try to be faithful. God, you know my heart. I'd, I'd love to be more faithful. But I, I ask nothing according to my righteousness. I ask you not to reward me according to my service for you. I ask you to act based on who you are. If all of this is wrong, if, 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 I, if I am going out and preaching to the Jews, <laughs> To, to put away the customs of Moses, then ignore all this. Then your righteousness stays. But God, act. Act according to your will and to your purpose. That is what Paul is doing. Now he knows he's going to Rome through, in chains. And he will be delivered up to a king. He's going to see the governor, Felix, and he will go before the king, Festus. But, and Festus would have let him go, actually. But he had appealed to Caesar. 
So when you appeal to Caesar, you end up having to actually go before Caesar, which again, we don't see, but um, he would have let him go. But we'll see again. Paul continues his testimony, and we will continue to see the faithfulness of God in and through his testimony. That's why Lord Jesus Christ stood over him and told him, be of good cheer. Yeah, you've got bloodthirsty men all over you. You've got men plotting to kill you. You've got the world determined to destroy you. Be of good cheer. <laughs> Be of good cheer. Yeah, yeah, I'm not here to destroy you. I have saved you. I am here to work in and through you. I am here for my testimony. Be of good cheer. This is what you want. <laughs> this is what you're all about. My testimony. My glory. So be of good cheer, Paul. For as you preached to me in Jerusalem, so you will preach in Rome. And that's fantastic for the, for the heart of a servant of God. That's comforting news, no matter what happens to the man. All, right. all the slanders in the world, all the harm, all the hostilities cannot compare to the peace of God to his people. Praise God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you are so awesome in your testimony, so magnificent to see how you weave your truth throughout the ages, how we can see an account that happened thousands of years ago and then see another account that happened thousands of years later and still thousands of years ago, and how they so closely reflect each other. I can raise up King David, who writes according to the same providence, for you are God, and you have not, and you will never change. I lift your name, my God. Lord of heaven and earth, we exalt you without end. In the name of your Son, amen. Thank you for listening to Sea of Fire Ministries. We hope and pray this has blessed you in your walk with God, and we hope you join us again next week. You have been listening to Sea of Fire Ministries, where the Word of God is life.